Good morning. That was my fault. Um, how are we doing this morning? It's good to see you all. Uh, and I wanted to say yesterday, a special thank you to everybody that came to our block party. It was incredible. Guys, it was, yeah, we can cheer because what was so fun is like 15 minutes in, I felt like the community that had showed up and our community just melded together. And it was so cool to see that. Um, it was amazing. For an hour and a half, we had just incredible weather, and then it rained <laughs> in the middle. And um, I actually have a video from um, yesterday, the cleanup. That's me. My, uh, my dear friend... Stephanie took that video, right? Didn't you take that, Stephanie? That was, that was you that when it was raining, you pulled out your phone under the tent and, and you took that? Okay, yeah. Anyway, Stephanie and I used to be really good friends. And uh, it honestly, if, if uh, cleaning up a nine square in the middle of the rain doesn't bond you together, then I don't know what will. Um, and so yesterday was incredible. The sun did actually come back out and uh, it was so fun. So thanks to everybody that showed up. It was so fun. Um, and if you're newer here, uh, specifically if you haven't been coming for more than like three, three and a half months, uh, I want to catch you up a little bit on where we are. We are going through um, kind of a long uh, series for the rest of this year called Wholehearted. And uh, we started it at the beginning of May, and we've almost systematically been going through the areas of our heart of what it means to follow Jesus. So it's uh, a type uh, A person's dream, where we're just like very... Um, almost orderly going through, and we started with this idea of family and, and what's it mean to make friends and how do we make friends, and if Jesus has called us to follow him, then it seems like he's also called us to do that with other people, and so we started with family, practice, uh, we talked about health throughout the month of July, and right now we're in the middle of a series of conversations about worldview and, uh, and what does having a biblical worldview mean, but we got this idea of being wholehearted or pursuing Jesus wholehearted. Um, through something that actually Jesus said. Uh, when somebody asked him what the greatest command was, he answered, but what he answered was actually quoting from 2,000 years before that, Deuteronomy 6. And so Deuteronomy 6, it's a famous prayer, uh, probably the most famous Jewish prayer that uh, Jesus would have prayed as a little boy. And it starts off this way. It starts off with a statement, and then it uh, gives a command. And so the Shema is what it's called, and Deuteronomy 6 starts where uh, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so the Shema, this prayer, starts with a statement of there is only one God and he is preeminent above everything else and he alone deserves worship. And then right after that comes the first command, the one that Jesus quoted, and it says, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. And, and the heart means so much to us today, but to a Jew 4,000 years ago or even 2,000 years ago in the audience of Jesus, it would have meant even more because the heart was believed to be the center of our bodies, of our mind, of our thoughts, of our actions. Everything that we did centered around our heart. And so when Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, that was an all-encompassing statement. And so we want to say, okay, what's it mean for us to be wholehearted? And I've asked this question before, um, but I want to ask it kind of periodically. What if at the end of this year, we loved, knew, and experienced Jesus more than we ever had? What if at the end of this year, and I want you to think about this, um, and this isn't just for the, you know, the non-believer. This is for me. This is for you. What if at the end of this year, we knew, loved, and experienced Jesus more than we ever had? 
And, and that should mean just as much to the Christian as it does the non-Christian. Because if you know, love, and experience Jesus already, I want you to imagine how much greater life would be if we knew, loved, and experienced him even more than we ever had. And so that's what's kind of prompting these series of conversations as we go through. And we're basically just saying, what does it look like to love Jesus with our whole heart? What's it mean to follow Jesus with our whole heart? And so um, we're talking about worldview right now, and if you could put up the picture of the belief tree, uh, we spend, this is from YWAM, I love YWAM, they have so much good content on um, what a worldview is or what a biblical worldview is, and we spend a lot of our time in church talking about the top part of the tree, like what do we believe, what are our values, our decisions, and our actions, but we thought it would be worth it, especially for the month of August, to just say, okay, what if we go a little bit deeper? Because there is something that is feeding the root system in our lives. There's something that's even going before your beliefs. And it, it's the way that you see the world. It's the way that I see the world. And so we want to stop and take a moment and say, okay, I wonder, I wonder what's feeding the root system of my life. Because if it is CNN or Fox, Instagram, or the cancel of the week, then we will inevitably end up with beliefs that I don't think lead us into the places that we want to go. But if it is uh, the teachings of Jesus, if it's the spirit of Jesus, if it's the, um, the whole counsel of Scripture, if, if that's what's feeding the root system of our lives, then we are going to end up in a place that I do think that we do want to go. And so we just want to ask the question, what's feeding our worldview. And we established uh, a couple weeks ago, and again, this is all review, but I think it's worth saying, that we have moved specifically uh, in the last 50 years, but probably especially in the last five, we have moved from what um, cultural analysis would say is a Christian worldview to a post-Christian worldview. And not everything about a Christian worldview is good, not everything about a post-Christian worldview is bad, but we have moved from Christian to post-Christian, and I love what Mark Sayers says about post-Christianity. This is a dense quote, but I want you to engage with it. He says, post-Christianity attempts to move beyond Christianity while simultaneously feasting on its fruit. Post-Christian culture attempts to retain the solace of faith whilst gutting it of the cost commitments and restraints placed on the individual. Post-Christianity intuitively yearns for the justice and the shalom of the kingdom while defending the reign of the individual will. Said really succinctly, uh, post-Christian culture seeks to have the kingdom of God without the king. It has the kingdom of God. We want the shalom, the justice. Those are things that come with the kingdom of God, but they have said, we would like to leave the king. I don't want to submit my life to anybody except myself. Now, this is the moment that the church has often said, okay, fine. We're just going to pick up our ball and go home because you can't have our kingdom if you won't take our king. But I want to challenge us to approach this a little bit differently. It's why we're talking about these things. I want to challenge us to say, okay, what if, what if the world is longing for something? The world is longing for the kingdom of God. And guys, guess what? You know a guy. Like, you know the guy. You know the guy that can bring it. And so as the world is longing for this supernatural expression of a kingdom, we carry the spirit that supernaturally enables us to live in it. Does anybody else believe that? Yeah, we carry the thing that the world is longing for. And so instead of saying, you can't have that if you don't take the whole thing, I want us to take a moment and see the beauty of the spot that we're in right now. That we get to carry something. We know someone that can usher in the kingdom that everybody 
out there in the Western world is longing for. People are longing for the shalom and the justice of God, and that expresses itself through the kingdom, but that only can come through a king. And so, we have said, okay, there are five topics that we want to cover in the midst of worldview, and worldview is so much bigger than these five issues, but Tim Keller wrote an article where he said these were the five things that the early church, in the midst of persecution and pagan Rome, these were the five things that distinguished themselves from everyone else. And we want to say, okay, if they can do it, then I think we can do it too. Number one is, and this is today, the early church bridged ethnic and racial divides. Number two, it offered hospitality to, and care to the poor. It committed itself to the value of life. We talked about this one last week. It introduced a sexual counterculture. And then in week one, we said that they practiced, the early church practiced radical forgiveness and reconciliation. So are you ready to talk about ethnicity and bridging the gap? Okay, let's go. Before we get there, I got one point today, so don't miss it. I only have one point, and before I let you get there, I'm going to read 17 passages. <laughs> I know, you came for the stories and the worship, but you're just getting straight Bible. So, 17 passages, one point, relevance is coming. Let's start, if you're new, this is where we pretty much always start. We're starting in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, the Abrahamic covenant. And I believe so much of the New Testament is an outworking of this promise right here that God makes to a guy named Abram. But let's actually start with the end. I want to start with the very end of Genesis 12, 3. God says this, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So, the, the one point that I want to make, and I'm going to make it over and over again, is all nations, all peoples, was always God's plan. You start with Genesis 12, 3, and God says, and all peoples on earth are going to be blessed through you. But God takes a roundabout way of getting to that. So we're going to travail through a bunch of Old Covenant uh, Scripture, Old Testament Scripture, to get to the fulfillment of Genesis 12, 3. So let's start with Genesis 12, 2. God says this to Abram. He says, and I will make you, Abram, into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those that bless you, and I will curse whoever curses you. So God says, I'm going to get to all nations, but actually I'm going to start with you. I'm going to start with one man, one couple, one family, one nation. And this is actually kind of tough to grasp, but he starts really with like one ethnicity. He says, you will be my chosen people. And God's chosen people go into slavery. And God couldn't stand it any longer. 400 years in, he said, okay, I'm going to send Moses. This is the book of Exodus. He brings them out of captivity. And then he, God says, this is why I did it. In Deuteronomy 7, he says, I did this because you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord God has chosen you out of all the other people on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. God says, I did this. I, I rescued you because you are my treasured possession. Now, were there other people at the time that were enslaved? Yeah. So why, and, and it seems like God even preferences these people above the other country that was enslaving them, Egypt. It, it, it's, and this is tough to grasp, but I want to I wanna ask this question because I think we're all wondering it. Is that okay? I mean, and I'm going to raise a lot more questions than I answer this morning, so welcome to church. But... Um, is it okay that God, it seems like God is preferencing one people group above all others? And, uh, and I'm going to say this, and this is, this is not an answer to every biblical question, but every now and again, I think especially in our individual world, we have to remember one thing, that God's in charge, so God makes the rules. God's in charge, so God makes the rules. This is not a, a quote I would say to every apologetic question, and I don't even think it's the fullness of the answer here. 
But one thing we do want to say is God's in charge, so God makes the rules. But God being in charge is a good thing. God is not some toxic authority figure. He's not someone that we have to fear. And if he's good, then that means submitting to him actually is a joy. It's a joy to submit to a good leader. And God is a good leader. So God's in charge. He makes the rules. But there's a bit of discomfort, at least in my own spirit as I read this, and maybe yours too, when he says, but I've chosen you, Israel, to be my people. He says it a lot. Isaiah 41.8, but you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen. Isaiah 44.1, but now hear, O Jacob, my servant Israel, of whom I have chosen. Psalm 105.6, the psalmist says, O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. Psalm 135.4, for the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. And it gets even worse there. I mean, I chose four out of like 50. But it gets worse at the beginning of Deuteronomy 7, before the Israelites move into the land that they were promised. God says this. I mean, this is uncomfortable. He says, when you go there, there's going to be Canaanites and Jebusites and Amorites. And he says, here's what I want you to do. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take your daughters for, their, for your sons. Let's just sit there in a second. I mean, this is uncomfortable. This is, personally, if I could be honest, this is not the way I would govern if I was God. But you better believe I'm not sending Esther to die for any of your sins. So aren't you glad I'm not God? <laughs> God is good and God's in charge, so he makes the rules. But there is a bit of discomfort, at least in my own self, and as we look at this, and, and maybe some of us have gone into like a bit of a savior mentality and been outraged as we're reading this or hearing this or we've thought this before, but I want to remind you that most people in this room, you are the one that's excluded. And if you're Jewish, then, then that's not you, but uh, my blonde hair, my blue eyes, I am for sure excluded from this. Thank you. <laughs> I, thought, I thought it was better too, but we'll get them warmed up. If you're not Jewish, which I imagine most of the room is, is not, um, then you are the one that's excluded here. I'm not okay with it. I'm not comfortable with that. That's hard for me to read. That's hard for me to read through the Old Covenant and say, man, this is the way that God had it. Now, there are other passages. God explains why he doesn't want them to intermarry. He says, look, if you intermarry with them, you're going to take their gods, and that's not going to be what's best for you, and all I want is what's best for you. There are reasons behind that. But let's just take a moment and say, man, there are things about God that I think are hard to understand. There is a beauty in the mystery of who God is. Now, God goes on. And um, he says this, but he says more things than just this kind of, kind of narrative in the Old Testament. He does seem to um, also care about non-Jewish uh, people or, or anybody that's not the Israelites, the Gentiles. And, uh, and so he says this in Deuteronomy 27. He says to his people, cursed is anyone who withholds justice from the foreigner. He says, uh, or the psalmist says in Psalm 86, all nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you. Now, that doesn't jive with most of what we've been reading, but the psalmist says, no, all nations, not just one nation, but eventually there's going to come a time, remember Genesis 12, 3, that all nations are going to come and worship before you. In Isaiah 49, God says, I will make also you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. So if we're going to summarize ethnicity in the old covenant, it's a bit of a mixed bag because it seems like God's saying, I've got one special people but then he also seems to say at other points, there's coming a time that it's going to be all people, that it's going to be all nations. And in classic humans, the, the Israelites of the time, which later become the Jews, they really start to run with one 
part of the narrative. And they start to develop something called ethnic superiority. They start to buy into a lot of the verses I read at the beginning, but, but kind of exclude or forget about the verses that I just read. They start to buy into this idea that we are God's chosen people. God loves us more than everyone else. We are the only ones which God's favor will ever rest on, and that's not exactly true. And what's hard about that narrative is that they got it from the Bible. I mean, they got it from a lot of the passages that I just read. They, they didn't make anything up. They just left, left some stuff out. And, and I know this is like 2,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, but let's just take a moment and stop and say, oh, man, sometimes we do the same. Sometimes we take pieces that we like and, and exclude pieces that we, we don't like. This is what I would call DIY spirituality, where we start to put together our own spirituality. And DIY spirituality is the opposite. It is anti, it, it's, the, uh, it's against any kind of Jesus spirituality. DIY spirituality is the great enemy of Jesus-centered spirituality. And so as we start to piece together parts of a book or of a religion or of a faith or of the teachings of Jesus, when we start to piece it together, we're doing something that's not new. Sometimes we think that this cultural moment that we're in, it's the first time we've ever picked and, cho- and chose pieces that didn't really match up together. But man, they were doing this 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years ago. But this is the great temptation that we live in today. We are probably less tempted towards atheism than ever, but we are more tempted to building spirituality that looks a lot like you or a lot like me. And the thing about following Jesus is that we're supposed to follow him anywhere. The thing about following Jesus is that we follow him anywhere. And the thing about a biblical worldview is that we take the whole Bible. The thing about a Jesus-centered worldview is that we take all the teachings of Jesus, not just some. Following Jesus is beautiful, but following Jesus means that we follow him anywhere. So we've made it to the New Testament. And finally, this guy comes on the scene named Jesus, and he starts his ministry. And in Luke 4, it's kind of the beginning of his ministry after he comes out of the wilderness. And it says, Luke 4, 15, that he was teaching in their synagogues, so the Jewish place of worship. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. I sometimes forget that Jesus, especially among the Jews, was very popular for a season. I mean, he's in the synagogues, and everyone's praising him. And he even goes to his hometown. He goes to Nazareth later on in Luke 4, and it says that he was teaching in the synagogues. And what he did is he pulled out the scroll of Isaiah, and he found the part where it's talking about the Messiah. Isaiah had predicted the Messiah, and he finds the scroll, and he says, okay, I'm going to read from here. And he reads this long passage about the coming one, the Messiah that everyone had been waiting on. And then at the end, it's the OG mic drop. Jesus says this, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Exactly. He says, Messiah's coming, and today, today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, I assume this is the part where they get angry, because he just claimed to be the Messiah. But it says, actually, right after that, right after he says that, it said, all spoke well of him and were amazed at his gracious words that came from his lips. So this wasn't the part that made people mad. This wasn't the part. The part that made people mad, the part that was so difficult to understand in Nazareth at that time, was what Jesus said next, because, of course, he kept going. He said, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was also a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were not many in Israel with lep- or were there not many in Israel with leprosy? 
in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. No. Um, and so Jesus says, and let me give some context. If you read uh, a bunch through the Old Testament, you find these stories that Jesus is referencing. He's saying, look, there were a lot of widows in Israel, but God came to the one that was outside of Israel. There were a lot of men with leprosy in Israel, but, but Elijah actually went and he healed the one that was not in Israel. Basically what Jesus is saying is God cares about more than just the Jews. I want to I I show you from the old covenant, I want to show you from your scripture, fellow Jewish people, that God cares about more than just the Jews. And look at what they did right after that. They got up, drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of the hill to which the town was built in order to throw him off a cliff. <laughs> okay, so summary. Jesus says, summary of Luke 4. Jesus says, I'm the Messiah. And everybody leans in and says, okay, we're listening. And then he says, and I've come for more than just the Jews. I've come for the Gentiles. Nope, fell him off a cliff. <laughs> Guys, this is Luke 4. This is what made the people around. This is what the, the reception he received in his hometown. I always assume, man, it's because he said he was God. It's because he said he was the Messiah. And that offended some, but that didn't offend these people. And these people said, no, 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 no. If you've come for more than just us, then you're out. And Jesus, this is just scratching the surface. At the height of Jesus' ministry in Mark 3, um, it said that he was attracting Jews, Edomites, Sidonians, people from Tyre. He's caught at one point talking to a Samaritan woman. That's no good. He uh, commends the faith of a Roman centurion at another point. He says, man, I haven't seen faith like that in anywhere in this nation. All of God's people, I haven't seen faith like that. And he points at a Roman centurion. And then think about it. Think about two of Jesus' last commands. Matthew 28, 19, he says, I want you to go and make disciples of Israel. Now, that's not what he said. He said, go and make disciples of, there's the phrase, all nations. So Jesus starts to bring back this idea. And in Acts 1.8, he says to his disciples, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. So Jesus starts to turn the narrative back to Genesis 12.3. And he starts to bring back this idea of all nations. Now the Jews of that time perfectly understood what the narrative was in the Old Testament. And they loved what I'm saying right now. They loved this phrase, God's in charge, so he makes the rules, because the rules benefited them. The rules benefited the Jews in the Old Testament, and so they're like, man, we love that God's in charge, and he does make the rules, and we love to submit to those. What, what they had a hard time with was when Jesus came onto the scene and he started to move into phase two of that covenant. When he started to move into the all peoples part of the Abrahamic covenant. And that was difficult for them to grasp because it was new, it was offensive, and it was just uncomfortable. It was uncomfortable for them. It was uncomfortable to have the narrative shift to, I mean, I was in the inner circle to now God came for everyone. So, I think we made it through 16 or 17 passages, and we've identified basically what we've gotten to at this point. We've identified the problem with first century Jews. Praise God. I'm so glad we got there. Which begs the question, so what? So what does this mean for us? Because the summary is, for a time, God's, God's preference was on a certain people group. And we've said, okay, but if God's in charge, he makes the rules. But now, now we live in a different era. We live under a new covenant where God's preference knows no race. His preference knows no color. His preference knows no language. His preference knows no ethnicity. And we're going to apply the same thing. God's in charge, 
So he makes the rules. Amen? This is the covenant that we live under now. It started a bit, a bit uncomfortable for us. It started a bit weird because it's like, man, it seems like I'm not in the inner circle. But praise God for Jesus because he came and he opened up a new covenant that said, no, 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 no. Now I've come to fulfill the whole thing. Now I've come and there is no one that is excluded from following me. And guys, this, this, if we know the what of racism, this is the why of racism. This is why racism and ethnic superiority isn't just a bad idea, it's bad theology. Racism and ethnic superiority isn't just like some bad idea. It is poor theology because of the narrative that God's been writing throughout the whole council of Scripture. And so if God has offered his reconciliation to all people, don't you think we should do the same? Don't you think we should do the same? If God Almighty says, no, 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 this thing's for all of us, then I've got to say, okay, surely my little offering would be for everyone as well. God's in charge, so he makes the rules. And this was the one unique, offensive, uncomfortable part of the early church that the Romans and the Jews, everybody had a problem with. Because everybody <clears throat> was benefiting from being on the inner circle. Everybody was benefiting from them being the preferred race in power or the preferred race of God. And Jesus came and said, man, that's, that's not the way things are done anymore. I'm fulfilling what my father has originally said. And this was both dangerous and attractive to the early church. I wonder if we could do the same. I was listening... Um, I was listening to another guy, another pastor, talk about this this week, uh, Darius Daniels, and he was preaching on the Good Samaritan. And, uh, and he said the Good Samaritan had to cross the street to go, find, um, to go find that guy. He had to leave the place that he was comfortable, and he went to another place that he wasn't comfortable. And, and he said this, he said, um, and I've heard a friend say this too, but he says, when you're a minority, you have to go where the dominant culture is. When you're a minority, you have to go to the, where the dominant culture is. And it got me thinking, I mean, and so I started, I've heard that before from a friend, but then I started thinking as I'm listening to that podcast, it, I started thinking about times that I've been a minority. And let's address the obvious, I'm white, straight, middle class, male. Like, that's, I live oftentimes in places where I'm not that. But I think if anybody's living uh, a, a way that they should, you find yourself in places that you're around people that are not like you. And there's been moments in my life that I've found myself not in the majority, but in the minority, and I've learned a great deal from them. Number one, let's start easy. This week at staff meeting, I was the only guy there. And the women started talking about having a coup. So <laughs> that was a bad experience. Uh, if you guys have been around our church, about a year and a half ago, I had one of my mentors come out from Las Vegas, Pastor Williams, and he preached. And, uh, but before he preached at our church, I actually got to preach at his, and Pastor Williams was a great mentor of mine in Las Vegas, but he leads a predominantly African-American church, and so he invited me to preach uh, some Sunday when we lived there, and first of all, I didn't know if I was ever going to get up to preach because the worship just went on, but it wasn't like that, let's get this over with. It's like, I've got nothing better to offer. The presence of God had fallen in that room, and it lasted an hour, and I got up, and what I did is I preached the same message that I'd preached at my church like two weeks before, but totally different response. It was, other than preaching to all of you wonderful people, it was the best preaching experience of my life. <laughs> I didn't have to coax and amen. Like, they, I had hankies getting waved. It was amazing. It was the most fun I've ever had preaching. And I was, as uh, I was there with Catherine, I was certainly in the minority. It was a great experience. There's been others that have been more uncomfortable. 
uh, when Catherine and I, before we moved to Cincinnati, we lived in Barcelona. And uh, we got to Barcelona. We lived there for a few months. And the first night we were there, we went to a coffee shop and met our barista, and we invited her to the church that we were going to start going to. And she said yes, which is great. She had broken English. I had broken, we had broken Spanish. And she invites us to, uh, or we invite her to church, and we set a meeting point, and we got her WhatsApp number. And she texted us three minutes before. And she said, hey, my boyfriend's coming, and we're driving. We'll pick you up. We're in a white van. And when I say white van, it's exactly what you're picturing. <laughs> it's not a Chrysler. It is like white utility van, no windows. And so for three minutes, we had the choice. What are we going to do? And we're looking around. It's like nobody knows us. Nobody has our number. Nobody cares about us. Nobody speaks our language. We were a minority in that culture. We had to make a decision. Are we about to do something that if this goes wrong, nobody, is care- nobody cares? Nobody's looking for us. We did it, and we lived. Um. Even probably a little bit more serious, when Catherine and I moved here, we bought a house in Madisonville, and <clears throat> we were the only white people on our street uh, for the whole time that we were there. And we were also the only people that had lived there for less than 30 years. And if I'm honest, for the first like year, it was like normal. It was fine. Until spring of 2020 happened. And it started with Ahmaud Arbery and then George Floyd. And I suddenly became very aware in my neighborhood of my whiteness. And, and I would have, I mean, we were mourning as, as a culture, as a country, and it was hard. But I became very, very aware that I was mourning differently than the rest of my neighbors. And guys, I'll be honest, for the first year of living there, it was, it, it was normal. We made great friends. Dave and Veronica were uh, a blast across the street. Our next-door neighbor, Miss Bobby, helped us a ton uh, during fertility treatments. It was a really good experience. And then it was really, really good, but it was really uncomfortable to live through that season as a minority in our neighborhood. But guys, I'll tell you, every time I've been a minority, usually it is uncomfortable. And I don't have a ton of experience. I probably have one of the least amounts of experience in this room. But every time I'm in a place that I don't look or act like others, it's really difficult. But it's always sanctifying. It's always good. It's always challenged me. And so I love what Pastor Daniel said. He said, man, when you are a minority, you have to go where the dominant culture is. And I think Jesus starts to do something different with the narrative. He starts to do something different when he starts doing things in ethnicity and he starts fulfilling Genesis 12, 3. And this, this is my one point. The, the theological truth that God came and his plan has always been for all people all color, all nations. And if we grasp this theological truth, then it changes some things. One, it changes the way we engage with our neighbors and our places of business in our neighborhood. It changes the way that we view our church and the local church and the churches around us. It also should increase the care that we have for the global church. Jesus didn't come and die for uh, the American church. He didn't come and die for the church in Cincinnati. He did not come and die for city church. He came and died for his follower. He came and died for all that would follow him, which is the global church. Guys, you are a part of something that is so beautiful and that has been gaining momentum for 2,000 years. There is a global movement that you're a part of, and we are just a very small microcosm of it here. But you're a part of a movement that's been going for 2,000 years. And it started in a poor little suburb of Jerusalem one night. 
Some weird astronomy stuff was going on. There was a star that kept moving. There was a baby that was said to be born, but the weird thing about this baby is that uh, it was said that his mom was still a virgin, which didn't make any sense. And there were all kinds of weird things going on in this little farm town of Bethlehem. But the craziest part of the whole story, and you should read it with me, the craziest part of the whole story is in Luke 2.10, an angel shows up. A spokesman of God shows up, and he says this, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for, for all people. The angel, and let's just assume that he gets it right because he stands before God Almighty. And he said, I'm finally bringing good news. But it's going to be good news not just for the Jew or the Gentile. It's, I'm bringing good news for all people. And so that means that racial unity and equality isn't just a cool soundbite. It's not a progressive ideal. It is sound theology. It is sound theology to have that be a part of the witness that we are. The problem with it was that it was unexpected and it was disruptive. It was disruptive to the early church. It was disruptive because it shook things up with both Roman and Jewish leaders. But aren't you glad? Aren't you glad the angel said all people? Not rhetorical. Aren't you glad the angel said all people? I mean, think, I, mean I, I seriously want you to think about this. What if the angel came and he said, and I brought good news for the Jews? That affects a lot of us in this room. Aren't you glad that the angel didn't come and say, I've got, I've got good news for the Gentile? Aren't you glad that the angel didn't come and say, I've got good news for black people, for white people, for Asian people? Aren't you glad the angel didn't come and say, I've got good news for those of you that are rich or that are poor or that are men or that are women? Aren't you glad the angel came and he said, I've got good news, but I've got good news for all people? All right, we're going to get some energy. Let's stand up. And here's the one thing I want to do. We're going to go into worship, and I want to remember what God has been doing. He's been doing it for the beginning of time, but he's been especially doing it through Jesus for the last 2,000 years. He's been ushering in what I believe is the culture of heaven. And the culture of heaven, catch this, the culture of heaven is colorful. The culture of heaven is diverse. And so we're going to sing for just a moment. We're going to sing this out, let heaven come. And the thing about heaven, the thing about that command, that ask that we're doing, is we're asking for all of heaven to come. Heaven in its diversity Heaven in its great, great color and, and ways. There is no language, official language in the culture of heaven. There is no official color. There is no official race. There is no official ethnicity in the kingdom of heaven, in the culture of heaven. And so we're going to invite and we're going to sing this out, let heaven come. And when we sing it, I want you to think through the lens of what Jesus has done for all people. You guys ready? Gosh, I'm preaching my heart. Are you guys ready? Because, guys, this is really good news. This is good news that Jesus came and he died for all people. Let's sing.